case. There we go. But before we can really talk about what it means to love one another, um, we have to talk about the love of God himself. Like, what does it mean that God loves us? And how is that love what fuels and what drives and what motivates our community and sustain us and sustains us when loving one another is difficult. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to open in prayer and, and then we'll start. So I forgot to open in prayer. Let's do that. Um, I had slides like last week, but my computer decided to freeze up. And so um, we're just going to wing it. There wasn't a whole lot on the slides anyway that you were going to miss. Anyway, so let's begin with Lord with the Lord's Prayer. And uh, just FYI, we will use, there's several different firms. We will say trespasses, you know, so we're not all like, I don't want to get to that part. So let's, let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So this morning we are going to take a deep dive into the love of God, into the incomprehensible, unfathomable love of God. To think about it, to meditate on it, to share what it means to us. And see how that is, like I said, is what fuels and drives our community. One of my favorite authors in the world ever, he's no longer alive, his name is Brennan Manning. He made the statement once about the love of God. He said, we could more easily contain Niagara Falls in a teacup than we can comprehend the wild, uncontainable love of God. So talking about the love of God is a pretty ambitious thing for us to tackle. And I hope you brought your teacups because we're going in. Several years ago, I was on vacation with, uh, with my family, with Kimmy and the kids. And by some miracle, I was walking on the beach uh, alone. I'm not really sure how that happened, but I was alone walking on the beach. And as I was walking, just looking out across, well, not the ocean, but the Gulf. We were in Galveston. And um, just the, the sky and just the vast expanse of the horizon, I thought about the hymn, The Love of God, which is one of my all-time favorite hymns. The set, uh, one of the verses of the hymn, if you're familiar with the hymn, The Love of God, says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe, or man and woman, a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. And I thought about those words as I looked out over the not-so-clear waters around Galveston, but the, question, the thought occurred to me, and I prayed, Lord, is it true? Like, are you really that good? Do you really, is your love that deep? Do you love us that much? 
There are many descriptions about God in scripture, descriptions about his attributes, his characteristics, his inclinations toward people, his activities, both with his people and with nations. Lots of descriptions. I think just one off the top of my head, that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. These are descriptions of his characteristics, of his attributes, of the way that he acts. But there are only three statements in scripture that are statements about God in God's essence. You could say the only three places where a noun is used, where it says God is something, describing his essence. Out of curiosity, does anybody know what those three are? Anybody want to venture a guess? Yeah, Kimmy would be cheating. She can't answer any of these questions unless I put her on the spot. God is love, yeah. Any other one? Okay, so here are the three of them, and all three of them come from the Apostle John. In it's God is spirit, God is light, and God is love. Now, obviously, yeah, God is faithful, God is good, God is gracious, but these are things that are describing his attributes. And the it, but John says these three things. He says God is spirit, and that's in his account of the gospel. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's the words of Jesus. John says. Um, in his epistle, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Think about that, us with our mixed motivations, even with the best of intentions, but not God. God is light, pure light and goodness, and in him there is no darkness at all. And then, of course, as Calvin said, God is love. God is love. Three simple words that put together are one of the most profound theological statements ever uttered and recorded in scripture. God is love. I'm gonna read that because he says it twice in 1 John 4. I'm gonna read those words in context. In 1 John 4, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And a little later, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Some people primarily think and speak of God as power. When they're talking about power, you think, well, how would you describe God? Well, it's the three omnis, if you've ever heard of it that way. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. God is omnipresent. God is almighty. You know, God is power. Now, God is certainly powerful, to say the least. God is certainly mighty. But John doesn't say God is power and those who live in power abide in God. He says God is love. Think about that. God is love. One of my favorite, I feel like I throw out the word favorite a lot, um, so it kind of loses its meaning, but I just have a lot of favorites, songs and whatnot. One of my favorite authors of all time, a man named George MacDonald, um, who is very influential in C.S. Lewis. You may be more familiar with C.S. Lewis. Um, wrote these words in his book, Unspoken Sermons. He said, now what is the deepest in God? His power? No, for power could not make him what we mean when we say God. 
A being whose essence was only power would be such a negation of the divine that no righteous worship could be offered him. His service must be fear and fear only. Such a being, even were he righteous in judgment, yet could not be God. The God himself whom we love could not be righteous were he not something deeper and better still than we generally mean by the word. But alas, how little can language say without seeming to say something wrong? And we all say amen to that. In one word, God is love. Love is the deepest depth, the essence of his nature, at the root of all his being. God is love. God has always been love. There was never a time that God was not love. In the beginning, God was love. Before everything that was created, God was love. Before humans, before the earth, before the animals, before the stars in heaven, before all of it was created, there was love because God is love. Now, when we talk about love, there's a song that I used to listen to um, in a number of years ago that now my daughter really enjoys by a group called DC Talk. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. That's kind of taken back about 20 years or 25. I know dad does because we used to jam out in the car with it. But he has a song called Love. They had a song called Love is a Verb. Love is an action. So love cannot exist purely as a concept, like this abstraction. Like we talk about love, and love is very idealistic, but love never just exists as a concept. Love is always an action that is shared between at least two people and probably more. So if God is love, if we say that God is love and God has always been love, and if love is an action, it's relational and other-centered, then God has always been relational and other-centered. So how can that be? Well, C.S. Lewis might help us understand this a little bit. He said, all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love, but they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. Of course, what these people, well, I'll I'll skip down a little bit. Um, What Christians mean by the statement, God is love. They believe that the living, dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. So this living, dynamic activity of love that C.S. Lewis uses, in Christian theology, we call that trinity. We call that the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three in one, one in three. Diversity and perfect unity. Distinct yet perfectly one. Not a hierarchy of power and control, but a unity of mutual submission, respect, and love that has existed from eternity past. Have you ever thought about God that way? Not just in sort of abstract terms, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that the Father has been loving the Son from before the beginning. The Son has been loving the Father, and the Spirit has been loving the Father and the Son, and the Son has loved the Spirit, sharing in love and relationship from before the beginning. I just have to share this funny story. When I first, uh, some of the best theological questions (laughs) come from kids, 
and come from my kids in particular, my extremely sharp kids who think to ask questions that I never thought about when I was a kid. I was reading a story once to Jocelyn. It was a story of how when Jesus fed the, the, the 5,000, you know, took the five loaves and two fish and multiplied them to feed a bunch of hungry people that he had compassion on. Um, well, in this particular children's storybook, um, it says, and then before he multiplied, it says he lifted his eyes to heaven and thanked God or prayed to God. And Jocelyn was like, because we told her Jesus is God. And she, he's like, she's like, hold on a second. My oldest daughter, Jocelyn. And I made sure she didn't mind that I told this story. She said, hold on. I thought Jesus was God. I was like, yeah. She said, well, why is he praying to himself? <laughs> and I thought, well, that's really interesting, Jocelyn. Um, because God is one God in three persons. Trinity. Get it? And she's like, so there's three gods. I'm like, no, 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 not exactly. That's actually heresy. Um, <laughs> no, but but it was it was a fun interaction. Uh, never thought to ask that as a kid. So, uh, well, parenting is fun <laughs> and dangerous most, most, of the time. most of the time. That's right. Um, but this doctrine of mutual submission and love shared within the persons of the Trinity is something that's been essential to Christian thought from the beginning. Um, uh, a, a German theologian named Jürgen Moltmann made this statement that helps uh, illustrate that. He says, The Father exists in the Son, and the Son in the Father, and both of them in the Spirit, just as the Spirit exists in both the Father and the Son. By virtue of their eternal love, they live in one another to such an extent and dwell in one another to such an extent that they are one. There's a word in theology that is a picture, you know, because there's lots of different pictures of what it means for God to be triune. Um, some of them helpful, some of them not so much. There's one particular Greek word that's been used since the fourth century to, to speak of this. It's called, it's perichoresis. Can you say perichoresis? perichoresis. Okay. Maybe you've, I, maybe, I'm only recently discovered this word. Literally, the words together means to make space around. The image is almost the image of a circle dance of, of, of persons. Now, every metaphor for the Trinity falls short, so and this one does too. But perichoresis is is thought about as this circle dance or this mutual interaction between the persons of the Trinity. It's the same root word that we get choreography. So just to help, um, and the Greek word choreu, choreu, no, choreuo is the word that means dance. Again, C.S. Lewis said, the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions is that in Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person so much, but a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The pattern of this three-personal life is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. It's beautiful, beautiful picture, and it only scratches the surface of the mystery that is God, the God who is love. So that's part of what it means to say that God is love. But to say that God is love doesn't only mean that that love is shared within the Trinity, within God's self, within this beautiful mutual circle dance. God's desire has always been to share that exuberant love, to open up the dance, if you will, and invite others in. God loves the world, John tells us. God loves people, every single one of us, every single human being. God loves with a deep love. Um, sometimes I go to Walmart late at night 
which is a fun and interesting experience. You know, you go around, this is rare, but sometimes I have to go get something at midnight or one o'clock, and thankfully Walmart is there for me 24-7 except on Christmas. And, and I've had this experience, I call it the spiritual discipline of Walmart, um, which is that sometimes I just walk the aisles and I see people with their kids or their families and I'm thinking, why do you have kids out at one o'clock in the morning? This is really weird or whatever. But like I'm just walking through the aisles and I'm looking at people and it's almost like God is speaking to me. I love them. Like every single person you pass tonight, however different they look from you, however much you think that their circumstances are different than yours, I love them more than you could imagine. God is love. God loves everyone. God loves you more than you could imagine. So what are, we do a little interaction here. If you had to pick some words to describe what it means that God's love, that God loves us, how would you describe God's love for us, for his precious creations made in his image? How would you describe it? I always want to say, like, if you had to do it in one word, what would it be? And Kimmy's like, don't say that, because that's very intimidating. But what are some different words that you would use to describe the love of God? I think a lot of people are saying reckless these days. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. awesome. Indescribable. Indescribable. Unconditional. Unconditional. Overwhelming. Overwhelming. Encompassing. Encompassing, yes. He's the one true constant in the universe. Constant, yeah. Our love isn't always constant, <laughs> to say the least. His is. Anybody else? I was thinking about uh, a few years ago. I was in the tenth grade. I was uh, in the tenth grade Spanish class, and we had to learn some scriptures. And uh, when in John says that the word is God, and in Spanish they use the word verbo, the verb. Ha! <laughs> the verb is God. Yeah. God is a verb. They don't use palabra, they use verbo. Wow. So. Very interesting. Action. Action. Yeah. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It can be challenging to describe what love means because we use love in a lot of different ways. You know, we say, and Brother Joe is fond of saying, you know, we say, I love my kids, and we use the exact same word to say, I love ice cream or love a walk on the beach or whatever. Um, so it can be a little bit challenging. What does it mean? And sometimes that just means I love what this thing provides for me. I love what this thing does for me. And there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. I'd say that's great. Use love for ice cream. Use love for the people that make you feel safe and secure. It's beautiful. Um, but God's love and the love that he gives to us and invites us into goes deeper. When it, when it, a couple of words that I would throw out in addition to that. One of them is the word that's used most often in the New Testament when speaking of the love of God. There's several different Greek words used for love. One of them is agape. Agape. That's a Greek word for love. Agape is the highest form of love. Agape is other-centered, self-giving, sacrificial, committed, unconditional love. Or in the words of the Jesus Storybook Bible that a lot of us have read to our kids, agape is never never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. 
In scripture, perhaps the best place to describe this kind of love, this agape, is in 1 Corinthians 13, which you know many call the love chapter. You know, we read it at weddings and in all sorts of places. Paul says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That is agape love. That is a description of agape. And God is the origin and the source of all agape. So you could say, God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy or boast. God is not arrogant or rude. God does not insist on his own way. God is not irritable or resentful. God does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God never fails. God's love never fails. God is love. God is agape love. So that's a word, a Greek word that's used in the New Testament. There's another word that's used often in the Old Testament. It's in Hebrew. It's a word that, if I'm not mistaken, is pronounced chesed. So that one might be a little funner to say <laughs> together. Can you say chesed? Okay, yeah, it's a little more challenging. We could just say chesed so that we don't feel weird every time we say it. Hesed. One place where this word hesed is used is in um, the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 3, um, the prophet records these words from God to his people Israel. And this is also a message to us as those who have been grafted in, incorporated into the people of God, whom God loves. God says through Jeremiah, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. Unfailing love, that is hesed. Hesed is translated in a number of different ways. One of them is mercy. Sometimes it's translated love. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. So where you're hearing the Psalms when you read or loving kindness, that's hesed. Um, and here in Jeremiah, it's translated unfailing love. Um, I don't know if, if any of you know of the singer and, and Bible teacher named Michael Card. Um, he talks and writes a lot about hesed. The way that he describes it is this. He defines Hesed when the person from whom I have the right to expect nothing gives me everything. When the person from whom I have the right to expect nothing gives me everything. The love of God, the Hesed of God, is pure grace, unmerited favor, not a response to what we have done, but a reflection of who God is. His love is unconditional and endures forever. And it's relentless. God's love does not stay at a distance. God in love always pursues us. We're going to sing this morning in worship. Caleb already referenced the song. In one of the songs we're going to sing, it says, There's no shadow you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. That's Hesed. 
That's unfailing love. Ephesians 2 says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This kind of pursuing faithful love is how Jesus talks about God in the Gospels. It's how he talks about God. If you remember the three parables and specifically that he tells in Luke chapter 15, he said, God is like a shepherd. God is like a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away. And what does he do? He leaves the 99 and goes out even to the far country to find the one. And what does he do when he finds him? He puts him on his shoulders. And he carries him home. And he doesn't scold him and say, now you stop running away. He doesn't do what I often do with my kids. And I'm like, I told you to get back here right now. And you didn't, so you just sit over there or whatever, you know. He throws a party when he finds it. He calls the town and says, I found my lost sheep. That's what Jesus says God is like. That's what his love is like. He also says that God is like a woman who loses, who has 10 coins and loses a coin. And she searches the house to find it, looks under, I assume, every cushion behind every chair in every nook and cranny of the house until she finds it. And when she finds it, what does she do? She throws a party. She celebrates with her neighbors that she found the coin. Do you see a theme developing here? What is God's love like? The final parable, which is probably one of, if not the most well-known parable in all of the New Testament, is the parable of the prodigal son. Maybe better called the parable of prodigal sons, or maybe even better, the parable of the loving father. Where the son says, give me my inheritance right now, pops. I'm out. And so the father does in what seems like a pretty enabling uh, kind of thing to do. (laughs) And he squanders all the money. And his friends leave him when he runs out of money. And he gets so low that he's taking care of pigs and even eating pig food. And at that point he says, you know, even my father's servants have it better than this. I'm going home. And he's rehearsing his apology all the way home. I'm going to, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son, but make me your servant. And um, I will work for you and I, you know, we'll work out a contract or something. The father does not even give him the opportunity to give his, his apology speech. Because when he's still a long way off, the father hits the road. And he wraps him in an embrace of love. He puts a robe around his shoulders and a ring on his finger. And then what does he do? He throws a party, a celebration. He says, my son who was lost has been found. My son who was dead is alive again. And he throws a party. God's love is celebratory as well. It seeks until it finds. It will never give up. Never, ever Ever. The older brother did not like it so much, but even the older brother was invited to the party, was invited to drop his pride and his self-centeredness and, and join the dance. The older son was a lot further from the father than his younger son. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. I think that's a big point of the parable. You know? And what did Jesus say? He who is forgiven much loves much. Well, the younger son in the parable certainly had been forgiven much, and he knew that. See how very much the Father loves us, declares 1 John 3, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. 
God is love, and we are God's beloved. Now, we see the love of God on display in Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. When you read the Gospels, you see what God's love is really like. And what, how does Jesus express love? How do we read that in the Gospels? First of all, we see, that the love of, we see the love of Jesus in his presence with people who are hurting and suffering. He, you know, how often do we pass people, maybe at Walmart, maybe our own family on the way out the door, and we don't truly see them? Like, we see them, but we don't really see them. We don't really hear them. Jesus was present with people. He really saw them. He saw people on the margins that other people discarded. He heard their stories. He heard their cries for help. Jesus' love was present in this, in his presence. It was also, we see Jesus' love in his mercy. Jesus quoted Hosea once to people who were all up in arms about him hanging out with sinners. He said, go and find out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. <laughs> Jesus was often called a friend of sinners. He uh, he hung out with some he hung out with the wrong crowd, you know. He had some questionable friendships, but that's what his love is like. It knows no limits or bounds. He's a friend of sinners, including us. Jesus' love is also seen in his compassion. Over and over in the Gospels, it says he was moved with compassion, moved in the depths of his being. I think the word is. Splankna or splagnon, another weird word, but it means that your gut, like the very depth. He was moved when he saw people suffering. So I want to read an excerpt from this book that helps us to, um, there's a beautiful picture of this compassion of God seen in Jesus. The Gospels tell, and this is uh, called Jesus the Gift of Love by Jean Vanier. It says, the Gospels tell us of Jesus moved by compassion. And this Greek word splagna implies a physical component. It is a deep emotion that makes one's stomach turn over. Jesus is physically and emotionally moved by suffering. His heart obviously bleeds in the presence of poor people, rejected, abandoned, and crushed, who trust in God, but are like sheep without shepherds. He suffers with all those who are in pain, no matter what the class, religious group, or nationality they may be. There is something in him that cannot stand hypocrisy and downright injustice to the lowly, to the crippled, to sick people in need, crippled too in their hearts filled with guilt and shame crushed by those who were seen as representing god the priests the high priest closed up in their wealth and power jesus is a man of relationship and of communion seeking personal context touching people i think of how he touched um, the lepers that no one would touch holding hands calling each person to trust and to faith looking at each one loving each one in all their pain and poverty revealing also to them their beauty and that they are beloved of god perhaps the place where we see the love of jesus in clearest display is on the cross romans 5 says for while we were still weak at the right time christ died for the ungodly for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Another hymn, one of my favorites, is called Here is Love. Here is Love. It says, Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness like a flood, when the prince of love our ransom shed for us his precious blood. Who his love could not remember 
Who could cease to sing his praise? It will never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. And the second verse, it's like it takes it up a notch. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. When the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide, grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. That is the love of God seen in Christ Jesus pouring out his life for us. God is love and we are God's beloved. And the Holy Spirit too is a sign of love to us. The Holy Spirit is God's gift of love, his seal of love upon our hearts. Galatians 4 says, because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out Abba, Father, Daddy. Romans 5 says also that God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Where the Holy Spirit is active in the world, God's love is being communicated. When the Holy Spirit is at work, we are being formed into that image, loving like Jesus loved. So to quote Mother Teresa, where there is love, there is God. Or as John says, he who lives in love lives in God, and God abides in him. You know, we think about the Spirit, and we are a, TCF is a charismatic church. We think about what that means for the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Ghost, to have free reign and freedom in our midst to do what he wants to do. What that means fundamentally is that he is forming us into loving people, not just with, with good intentions and practical solutions and ideals that we try to realize, but the very love of God poured into our hearts and flowing through us to one another in the world around us. That is the true foundation of our community. That's the foundation of our life together. That's the first part of what it means to live life together in the kingdom of love. It's to live life together in community with each other, with our hands wide open and our heart wide open, receiving the love of God in Christ Jesus. God is love. And we are God's beloved. Think about this. We are the beloved daughters and sons of the Father, the objects of his affection, loved with an everlasting love and called according to his purpose, redeemed, restored, and forgiven, adopted into his family. We are also the bride of Christ, God's only begotten son, redeemed by his precious blood, rescued from sin and death and seated together with him in heavenly places right now, right now. We are the body of Christ, one body filled with one Holy Spirit through whom God has poured his love into our hearts, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, and through whom God is conforming us into the image of his Son. God is love and we are God's beloved. So in conclusion, to steal some phrases from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, what shall we say to these things, these amazing truths? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, in, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. I want to take just a minute and I just invite you to close your eyes, just to gently close your eyes, to quiet your hearts, maybe take a deep breath to just center a little bit. To open your heart in light of these great truths to the love of God. For God is love and we are are God's beloved. You are God's beloved. Do you believe this? Do you believe that the God revealed in Jesus Christ, your Abba Father, loves you? That he desires you? That he waits for you day after day? That he longs to hear the sound of your voice? Do you believe that he loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness? Beyond fidelity and infidelity, that he loves you in the morning sun and in the evening rain, that he loves you when your intellect denies it, your emotions refuse it, your whole being rejects it. It's true. He does. He really does. More pleasing to God than all your prayers and good works is that you would believe that he loves you. And oh, how he loves you. Let the focus of your faith be this one truth, the staggering, mind-blowing truth that God loves you. Not just that God loves Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. Not just that God loves the church as a whole. And not just that God loves in some vague way the whole human race. But the truth that God loves you. He loves you without condition or reservation, just as you are and not as you should be, because nobody is as they should be. He loves you in such a way that he would rather die than be without you. Jesus, the good shepherd, came to find your hiding place. He emptied himself, poured out his blood, and on the giving tree of his cross, willingly gave his life in love for you. Right now, at this very moment, God loves you deeply, passionately, unconditionally. His love knows no limits, no boundaries, and no shadow of turning. His love will never give up on you. He will never give up on you. He will love you forever. God is love, and you are God's beloved. Turn the eyes of your heart toward him now and see him rejoicing over you with singing. You are safe and secure in his love. Do not be afraid. His perfect love casts out fear. His heart is turned toward you. His eyes are always upon you, full of mercy and tenderness and affection. He is pouring his love into your heart through the Holy Spirit right now. So open your heart, your mind, your soul, your emotions, every part of you and with every fiber of your being, receive his love.
we do, Lord, we receive your love the best that we know how. And we respond in love to you. We say we love you, Lord, because you have first and so greatly loved us. We love you. And we pray that we might experience your love, though it's too great to understand fully. That we would have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep your love is. Now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So as you go from this place, we're going to go and worship the Lord. Let us go forth to love and serve one another and the world that God so loves. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. You're dismissed.